It's the NFL preseason. Check out the Ringer Fantasy Football Show on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you need fantasy rankings, we've got our rankings and sleepers at fantasyfootball.theringer.com. So come listen to Danny Heifetz, Craig Horlbeck, and me, Danny Kelly, on the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Why do they take off their shirts? Do you ever wonder about this? I do constantly. What is it about this sound that makes elite soccer players long, that makes them pine, that makes them burn to expose their bare torsos to the open air of European cathedral cities. I don't get it. Admittedly, I'm not someone who responds to moments of euphoria by stripping off layers of clothing, usually. If anything, I respond to moments of euphoria by putting on more clothing. You're welcome, by the way. If I ever scored like a 95th minute winner in a World Cup final, the camera would cut away to show my fans jumping up and down in the stands, then cut to my opponents weeping on the pitch, then cut back to me, carefully fastening the buttons of my cardigan. I like a cozy belly button. That's my deal. But even for normal people, taking off your shirt after a goal is not a rational or wise course of action. You get penalized for doing it. Under Law 12 of FIFA's Rules of the Game, you get a yellow card for it. You can get sent off. You can get suspended. Stripping partially, tastefully, nude on a soccer pitch is objectively an act of self-sabotage. And yet, every week practically, a player scores a goal in a big-time soccer match, great, and celebrates by wheeling away toward the touchline while peeling off the very garment whose sponsor logo keeps them stocked with Lamborghinis. The only conclusion is that somewhere in here, there's a moment when reason stops, when logic and self-preservation and the desire to not get wind on you are overwhelmed by a tsunami of happiness. On one side of that moment, you are a sober citizen who gives a toss what FIFA's Law 12 states about excessive celebration. On the other side of it, you're a radiant lunatic who suddenly understands that you have telegenic nipples. And that moment, that is the best thing in sports, as much as I like shirts. 
all respect to the shirt. Do not come for me, sleeve hive. But that moment after a great goal, when you feel temporarily out of your head and temporarily immortal, when you're suddenly too ecstatic for a breathable poly blend, or you're sobbing on the shoulder of a stranger in the stands, or you're standing up on my couch because I never go anywhere, that moment of total euphoria, that is why we love these games. If you happened to be listening to Argentinian radio on the afternoon of June 22, 1986, you were privileged to hear one of the great outbreaks of euphoria in the history of soccer. That was the day, of course, when Diego Maradona scored two of the most famous, two of the most iconic goals in the history of the World Cup back-to-back in three minutes and 49 seconds of real time. The first of those is easily the most controversial goal of all time, and we're going to talk about that. But the second, that's the awesome goal. That's the one where he runs through basically the entire English defense. And the commentator for Radio Argentina, the legendary Victor Hugo Morales, you can tell the exact moment when he crosses over into euphoria. He doesn't take his shirt off that I know of, but he stops narrating and just starts yelling genius over and over again. And then even that gets to be too much. And he starts repeating ta. If you've ever seen Diego Maradona moving with the ball, you get it. Maradona moves with the ball like he and the ball are the only two people in the world who understand each other. Maradona moves with the ball the way Kenny Rogers sings lady to a lady. Maradona moves with the ball like he just proposed to it in an airport. Maradona moves with the ball the way when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with someone, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. Maradona moves with the ball like he is Heathcliff. Maradona moves with the ball like they're running just as fast as they can, holding on to one another's hands, trying to get away into the night, and then he puts his arms around it, and they tumble to the ground, and then he says he thinks they're alone now. Maradona moves with the ball the way you and I look at Instagram photos of a dog. Morales watches him, and you can hear euphoria hit. Each individual word he says has a tiny shirt on and is in the act of peeling it off. It's wonderful. It sounds like... Hello. Hi. I'm Brian Phillips, by the way. I'm a writer at The Ringer. That was a long intro. I get carried away over soccer goals. I've been getting carried away over soccer goals for most of my adult life. Maybe you do too. Join me. Let's lose our heads together. Here's what we're going to do. For the next few months, ahead of the 2022 Men's World Cup, the 22nd World Cup, 
we are going to celebrate this truly magical recurrence of the numeral two by revisiting 22 of the goals that defined the tournament. Some of them you know, some of them you may not know, but the World Cup is the biggest stage. It's the biggest big top in town. And by town, I mean the universe. It's the tournament where the passions run highest, where the stakes are most crushing, and where a great goal has the power to transport hundreds of millions of people to another plane of existence. And behind each great goal at the World Cup is a story one that culminates in a moment of supreme emotion under the brightest lights on Earth. This is not a soccer podcast. This is a euphoria machine. We're setting out on the road to joy, and we're not going to stop until every shirt is either dead or neatly folded in a drawer. Welcome to 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup. This is episode one, and this episode, like the entirety of the 1986 World Cup, belongs to Diego Maradona. That's Diego Armando Maradona, born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, 1960, my favorite of the many legends surrounding his birth. I love this, holds that he came into the world kicking his legs and that the doctor announced to his mother, congratulations, you have a healthy son, and he is pure ass. Ass is in donkey. Donkey's kick. He grows up in a shanty town called Via Fiorito in the kind of poverty that's not kidding around. No electricity, no running water, dirt roads, canals full of toxic runoff. His father, also named Diego Maradona, works in a bone meal factory and gets paid sometimes. Life in Via Fiorito is hard and violent and often hungry. Diego looks back on it with love and fondness his whole life. It's complicated. His English biographer, a guy called Jimmy Burns, tells a story about how when Diego was a toddler, he lost his way in the dark and fell into an outdoor cesspit, an open-air sewer. Little Diego is drowning in excrement. Up above his head, there are stars. His uncle is trying to get down to him, and he keeps calling out, Keep your head above the shit, Diego." Great advice in general, also, in his case, a prophecy. So much of Diego's future life will be about trying sometimes successfully, often not successfully, to keep his head above the shit. Anyway, you know how this story goes. There's a wasteland near the shantytown where little kids play soccer. Guess who's good at it? Diego is tiny for his age, but try to stop him with a ball at his feet. Maybe you'll have time to wonder where he went before you hear the other kids shouting, Goal! He's got this unbelievable low center of gravity. He can change direction like he bought in at a molecular level to the NFL analytics movement circa 2014. Like there's no such thing as momentum. He has passion. More than that, he has vision. He has timing. He sees where things are going five seconds before they get there. 
Adults take notice. They alert other adults. Some of these adults are coaches on high-level youth teams. Does money change hands? Yeah. Does that money go to his family? Not most of it. By the time he's 11, he's humiliating 16-year-olds in organized games. There is a question hanging over this episode like a disco ball. The question is, why do sports make you feel things? Why does watching this athlete and not that athlete make you feel as though the top of your head has been taken off? If I feel physically as though the top of my head were taken off, I know that is poetry. Emily Dickinson said that. But why should we feel the sensation of poetry, that dizzy feeling of shining upward out of our own faces, watching someone perform the seemingly meaningless act of kicking a ball? There are theories. We'll get into them at some point. What matters now is that whatever that power is, this little kid has it. Grown-ass adults who have spent their whole lives around the game of soccer watch him play and they feel euphoria. They start sending him out to do tricks at halftime during professional soccer matches, and the crowd watches him, and the crowd feels euphoria. Do his youth coaches lie about his age so he can help them win games against older kids? They sure do. Does anyone make sure he keeps going to school after that point? He plays his first professional match in Argentina 10 days before his 16th birthday. He scores 116 goals in 166 games for Argentinos juniors before he turns 21. That's a lot of goals. Now he's famous. He signs his childhood best friend as his agent. That's cool. He will later fire his childhood best friend while his childhood best friend is stranded in Mexico City after the devastating 1985 earthquake on a trip he made on Maradona's behalf. That's less cool. It's complicated. But we're already seeing the emergence of the, let's say, mercurial Maradona we know from later years. In 1978, Argentina hosts the World Cup. Maradona is 17. The Argentine manager, Cesar Minotti, doesn't pick him for the team. Minotti says he's too young, he's immature. Other people say it's because Minotti doesn't want to share credit when Argentina wins the World Cup. And they do win the World Cup without Diego. He learns the lesson every young star eventually has to face. Who do you trust? It's complicated. Here's what he wrote about the World Cup snub in his autobiography. And obviously, this being sports, I use the terms he, wrote, and autobiography loosely. I swore I would get my revenge. It was the biggest disappointment of my life. It marked me forever. It defined me. I felt in my legs and in my heart and in my mind that I would show them all. That's what I said when the tree sentinel killed me in Elden Ring. He leads Argentina to the Youth World Championship in Tokyo in 1979. 
Brazilian journalists who watch him in that tournament start using a phrase that will follow him for the rest of his life. The phrase is not since Pele. By the time he secures a move to his favorite club, Boca Juniors, at the age of 20 in 1981, he can't take a walk without the sound of cameras snapping. He's seen by millions of fans in Argentina as a figure of destiny, as a chosen one. They call him El Pibe de Oro, the golden boy. They believe he is fated to lead Argentina to a repeat victory at the 1982 World Cup. They have not learned the number one lesson of cheering for Diego Maradona. It is always better when you keep your expectations a little fuzzy. Okay, quick aside. While the golden boy is busy embodying his nation's hopes and dreams, his nation itself is getting mixed up in an international incident. Little 1982 history. I promise this will be quick, but we have to talk about a sort of minor, embarrassing misunderstanding that happens during the build-up to the World Cup in Spain. In 1982, Argentina and England share a small war. It's complicated. Argentina, at this time, is ruled by a repressive and violent military junta. They control the media, they control the national soccer team, they use the national soccer team for propaganda. Around 300 miles off the coast of Argentina, near the northern tip of Antarctica, is an archipelago called the Falkland Islands. Few thousand people live there, mostly of British descent. The islands are British territory. Footnote one, see colonialism. Argentina maintains, and still does to this day, that the islands belong to it. Almost everyone who lives on the islands wants to stay with the UK. This is not a clean or comfortable or easy situation. The junta, partly to ramp up patriotic fervor and shore up its own power, invades the islands. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, who doesn't not like patriotic fervor and power, sends in warships. The confrontation between Britain and Argentina over the Falkland Islands is escalating quickly. Reports from the Falklands say British forces are poised for the final assault to win back the islands following their capture of the settlements of Darwin and Goose Green. Okay, very quickly, Britain and Argentina start blowing up each other's ships. Argentine bombers hit British forces with bombs Argentina bought from Britain. Many of these bombs are bad. They fail to explode. Foolproof strategy if you want to win a war. Be an arms dealer and suck at it. But British forces quickly mount a counter-invasion. The Argentine military crumbles. After just 10 weeks, Britain is on the cusp of taking the Falklands back. What's relevant here, from a Maradona Studies perspective, is that when the Argentine team flies to Spain in June 1982 for the World Cup, all they know about the Falklands War is what they've learned from the propaganda narrative on Argentine TV. In other words, they think Argentina is winning. In Europe, they turn on the TVs in their hotel rooms and discover, to their horror, that Argentina is in fact on the brink of defeat. The United States and most of the old world order have rallied around the British. 
In a state of shock, they play the first game of the tournament, which they lose 1-0 to Belgium. The very next day, the Argentine military surrenders. The soccer team limps to the second round where they lose 3-1 to Brazil, instead of fulfilling his destiny and leading the team to glory. Maradona goes a slightly different route, the route of kicking Brazil's Joao Batista in the groin and getting a red card in the 85th minute. He's booed, or as the English commentator John Helm says at the time, roundly booed off the pitch. That moment of disgrace and that round booing took place in Barcelona, where, coincidentally, Diego has just agreed to move. He's transferred to FC Barcelona in 1982 for $7.6 million. That's a number that I think it's fair to say seems quaint today, seems kind of cute. $7.6 million won't buy Jaden Sancho shorts. In 1982, it's an enormous, a barely conceivable world record transfer fee. In Barcelona, doesn't go great. Diego is a force of nature on the pitch. He plays as a classic number 10, and at the Bernabeu against Barcelona's arch-rivals Real Madrid, he scores a goal so stunning that the Real Madrid fans give him an ovation. The number of times that's happened before is never. But he doesn't do well with quiet. He doesn't do well with loneliness. Downtime is not his ally. He's just moved away from his family and everyone he knows. What do you fill the hours with? Everyone is searching for euphoria. A lot of people find it in him. Where can he find it? If you're making a biopic, here's your crucial scene. Maradona discovers cocaine. He discovers nightclubs. He discovers brawls in nightclubs. He feuds with Barcelona executives. He gets hurt after a brutal tackle from a player known as the Butcher of Bilbao, pleasant dude, and misses a few months. He faces racist taunts from Spanish fans due to his father's indigenous ancestry. He's angry. He's bored. He's depressed. Just hold it in, his advisors tell him. Keep your head above the shit. But holding it in is not what Diego Maradona is good at. In 1984, Barcelona loses 1-0 to Athletic Bilbao in the Copa del Rey final. After the match, Maradona gets into a fight, starts a brawl, really, while the teams are still on the pitch. More than half the country is watching on TV. The King of Spain is watching in the stadium. Diego's feeling frustrated because he's been kicked around by Bilbao players all match, including by the butcher of Bilbao, that guy again. So when a Bilbao player mocks him after the game, Maradona knocks him down. Some people say it was a headbutt, some people say punch. Either way, not great. He elbows another guy in the face, knees the first guy in the head, he knocks that guy unconscious, he is five foot five. That's not the point. You can be small in stature and still lay waste to a Copa del Rey winning soccer team. The key is believing in yourself. Crowd starts throwing stuff, dozens of people end up injured, the scandal is 
intergalactic. Won't someone please think about the King of Spain? After two seasons, Barcelona clutch their pearls and ship Maradona off to Napoli for a fee of about $10 million. This is another unthinkable world record and also the amount Norwich City FC spent in 2021 to buy Ben Gibson from Burnley. If you watched Asif Kapadia's great Maradona documentary, also called Diego Maradona, which aired on HBO in 2019, it's the Napoli phase you're probably most familiar with. You're thinking about the Camorra. You're thinking about religious images with Maradona's face on them. You're thinking about full-on, drug-fueled rock star hedonism. You're thinking about high, narrow, cobblestone alleys with giant Maradona flags flying among the laundry. But we're not quite there yet. Not right now. He hasn't yet won the Scudetto at Napoli. He hasn't yet won anything at what you'd call the highest level. He's 23 years old. Will he go down in history as a case of failed potential? Is there more to Maradona than controversy? These are the questions people are asking about him when 1986 rolls around. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just a weird year, 1986. I was in third grade, Ponca City, Oklahoma. I had a teacher, I'll never forget this, who went abroad. She went on vacation to Europe. This was a big deal because you didn't really go on vacations to Europe if you lived in small town Oklahoma in 1986. At least we didn't. You went to Branson, Missouri, or if you were really cosmopolitan, if you were a sophisticate, you maybe went to Florida. So when she came back, she gathered the class around to tell us what Europe was like. And I'll never forget what she said to us. She looked around into our little faces and said, 
children, if America went to war against every other country in the world at the same time, we would win easily. She was my art teacher. She went to the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, and her big takeaway was, my guys could beat your ass. Later, I think it was the same year, she suffered an injury when her house was struck by lightning. The way she explained it to us, she was sitting in her living room watching television, and lightning flew out of her TV, engulfed her body, and electrocuted her. That is 1986 to me. Just massive late Cold War nuclear pride and random fireballs spewing out of home appliances. Mrs. Wiley, if you're listening, I'm sorry I drew a picture in your class of lightning coming out of your television, engulfing your body, and electrocuting you. In my defense, you told that story to a room full of nine-year-old kids. Did you really not know what would happen? 1986, at the start of 1986, in January the Space Shuttle Challenger disintegrated over Cape Canaveral, Florida. At the end of 1986, in December, Eddie Murphy's Party All the Time finished in seventh place on Billboard's year-end Hot 100. That kind of year. I'm going to throw out some words for you now. 1986 words. Chernobyl. Oprah. Top Gun, Blue Velvet, That's Not a Knife, This is a Knife, Run DMC, Take These Broken Wings and Learn to Fly Again, The California Raisins, Rock Me, Amadeus. At any given moment in the summer of 1986, you could turn on a radio and discover the exact midpoint between Jazzercise and Nuclear Armageddon. I am referring, of course to the final countdown by Europe. Talk about fireballs spewing out of home appliances. Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, It by Stephen King. That's the best-selling English-language novel of 1986. Just a huge year for freak accidents, surreal spectacles, explosions in the sky, girls who want to party all the time, and clowns who are trying to kill you. Also a huge year if you happen to be a guy, maybe an international soccer star, who either loves all those things or is all those things at the exact same time. 1986 World Cup, Mexico City. Here's a sentence I think about a lot when I think about Diego Maradona. He didn't say it. Humphrey Bogart said it in the seminal 1941 noir film, The Maltese Falcon. In the movie, of course, Bogart plays the iconic private detective Sam Spade. Trench coat, fedora, Golden Gate Bridge, that's this. Anyway, at one point, Bogart is tussling with the great German actor Peter Lorre, who, as usual, is playing this sort of slinky, silky, treacherous, non-specifically foreign, ineffably effeminate scoundrel. 
And here he's tussling with the ultra-American, hard-bitten icon, Humphrey Bogart. This is the second time that you have laid hands on me. And Bogart grabs him, and here's what he says. When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. Unbelievable thing for a hero to say in a movie. I think about it in part because that line, the attitude in that line, seems to express something important about Maradona's approach to being in the world. There's no point in sugarcoating his history. It's not easy to talk about, but Maradona was frequently a violent person, someone with very little impulse control. He was caught many times lashing out at others, and not only other soccer players. In 2014, he was caught on film striking his girlfriend, Rocio Oliva. 20 years earlier, in 1994, he was sentenced to two years in prison, suspended sentence, for repeatedly firing into a group of journalists with an air rifle. Those are just two of the more famous instances. Maradona is also someone who grew up in an environment where violence was normal. His father, whom Maradona described as the kindest man he ever knew, used to, quote, thrash him for wearing out his soccer shoes too fast and someone who struggled with drug addiction, and someone who, as the video archive of his public appearances amply makes clear, was simply not in his right mind for a good percentage of his waking life. Which doesn't excuse anything he did or make him a less complicated figure to root for, it just demonstrates that the beauty Maradona was capable of creating sits uncomfortably beside or within a personal chaos that was often ugly, often damaging, and often tragic. And Maradona himself never seemed to acknowledge or face up to the extent of his problems. Instead, he stuck out his chin and looked at the rest of the world like he was Humphrey Bogart and it was Peter Lorre. Mexico City. Actually, you know, The other reason I've always associated that quote with Maradona and this World Cup is, well, why do you think that line worked on a 1941 American movie-going audience? I think it's a question of power. There's personal power, like a famous soccer star has. Then there's imperial power, like a country might have. It's important that the Peter Lorre character is coded for the American audience as a slippery foreigner. His name is Joel Cairo. He's not one of us. The question is, which side of the sentence are you on? The 1941 imperial American public is entirely on Bogart's side. We dispense the slaps, you take them, and you don't even get to complain about them. You don't even get to privately dislike receiving them. But when you're slapped, you'll take it and like it, loses some of its brutalist charisma if you're on the other side of it, the non-imperial side of it. I mean, imagine someone saying that sentence to you. Imagine how you would resent that person, how you would long to destroy that person. This is not a baseball bat. This is a euphoria machine. Mexico City in the summertime, 
It is hot. Matches in the middle of the day so the players won't cast shadows on TV. The ground is dry. Players compare the pitches to, quote, dried shit. Argentina gets past Uruguay in the round of 16. In the quarterfinals, they are drawn against... England. As draws go, it could probably be worse, but I can't see how. Remember that awkward war Argentina and England had fought four years earlier? That tiny detail? Yeah. Within Argentina, the Falklands War intensified a long-standing feeling that the country has been treated as a whipping boy, as a second-class world citizen, by Britain and America and their allies. This feeling extends back at least as far as 1806, when England seized Buenos Aires during the Napoleonic Wars. Much more recently, the England soccer manager Alf Ramsey had infamously called the Argentine players animals after a bad-tempered match at the 1966 World Cup. Quick bit of trivia, that was the match that led to the invention of the red card and yellow card system. Not a night at the ballet. Animals. England won that match 1-0, and afterward, Ramsey forbade his players from exchanging shirts with the Argentinians. When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. So yes, when Argentina draws England in the 86 quarterfinals, it makes for a, let's say, charged atmosphere. Before the match, the players say all the expected things about how sports and politics are separate. Maybe the English players mean this. The Argentine players are definitely lying. I know they're lying because Maradona will later say, and I quote, That was a lie. I'll read you some more things he said. The Argentine name for the Falkland Islands, by the way, is the Malvinas. Here's Maradona. Of course, before the match, we said that football had nothing to do with the Malvinas War, but we knew a lot of Argentine kids had died there, shot down like little birds. This was revenge. We did nothing but think about that. Bullshit was it just another match. In a way, we blamed the English players for everything that happened, for all the suffering of the Argentine people. I know it seems like madness, but truthfully, at the time, that was what we felt. It was stronger than us. We were defending our flag, the dead kids, the survivors. That's why I think my goal meant so much. Actually, they both did. First goal. The revenge goal, the rules-what-rules goal, the by-whatever-means-necessary goal, the and-remember-that-thou-wast-a-servant-in-the-land-of-Egypt-and-that-the-Lord-thy-God-brought-thee-out-thence-through-a-mighty-hand-and-by-an-outstretched-arm goal, that goal. That's from Deuteronomy, by the way, a book of the Bible that's about the importance of obeying the rules. It's complicated. The hand of God goal. And listen, I get it. If you are still mad about the hand of God goal in the year 2022, I won't tell you you're wrong. 
I'm not here to say that you're stupid or uncool. Without the rules, we can't have sports. We can't trust sports. Who do you trust? The hand of God is an iconic goal that cuts directly against the continued viability of the sport it's an icon in. Why do sports make you feel things? Sometimes they just make you mad. And that's okay. Sometimes you do not have to celebrate this act. It is divisive for a reason. But what if you look at it this way? What if the system has been rigged against you? What if the rules have been rigged against you your whole life? What if the rules as you see them exist to be invoked against you, to keep you down and the people you love down and the people you're loyal to down at every level and have from the time you were born? What if the rules meant your dad had to show up on time every day for a backbreaking job and got paid when the boss felt like it? What if the rules mean the men in charge of the game you love have been using you for their own benefit and profiting off you since you were 10 years old? What if the rules mean fans have the right to expect everything from you and also the right to turn on you if they don't get it? As a young player, Maradona used to plead for basic human respect. He once told a journalist, Maradona is not a machine for making people happy. Do we take that into account now in how we treat him? Of course we don't. What if the rules let us say, this is not a person, this is a euphoria machine? What if, when your country goes to war, the rules mean the whole international order mobilizes to say you're wrong and the old world power, the colonial power, the overseer, the kings and capitalists are in the right? I'm not saying this outlook is correct. I'm saying this is about a feeling. And right now, it's about the feeling that the system was not made for you. It was made for someone else to be deployed against you. And to survive, you have to outwit it. There's a stock figure in Argentine culture called the pibe, the urchin, the trickster boy. This is the figure the brilliant English soccer writer Jonathan Wilson had in mind when he called his book about Argentine soccer, Angels with Dirty Faces. The pibe is a figure from the slums, a kid who looks at the rules with contempt because he knows that the people who write the rules have contempt for him. He wins by trickery, by mischief. Keep it in mind. Tough first half. 0-0 score. Six minutes into the second half, Maradona gets the ball in the middle of the pitch. Up in heaven, God is finishing up his manicure, maybe blowing on his nails. Down on earth, there's this English midfielder called Glenn Hoddle. Glenn with two N's, Hoddle with two D's. Doesn't get more English than that, and if it does, it's a pudding. Glenn Hoddle, great player, longtime midfielder for Tottenham, went on to become manager of the England team where he lost on penalties in the second round of the 1998 World Cup to Argentina. Fired in 99 for appearing to say in an interview, he disputes this, 
that disabled people are experiencing karmic punishment for misdeeds in their past lives. If that's true, he may be born into the next life without a mouth. Glenn Hoddle. He's trying to defend Maradona. This attempt lasts one one-thousandth as long as my biography of Glenn Hoddle. Maradona just sort of stutter flicks the ball with his left foot across his body and casually perambulates past Hoddle. I'm using the word perambulates instead of walks to signify the enormous expanse of leisure time he has in which to get around Glenn Hoddle. Now he's got three English defenders converging on him just outside the area. He's right in the middle of the pitch, two Argentine players ahead of him and five English players between him and the goal. He flicks the ball toward his teammate, the forward Jorge Valdano. He's looking to play a little one-two, but Valdano's marked. Valdano later goes on to play an important role at Real Madrid as a player, a manager, and a sporting director, finally leaving the club in 2011 after becoming the first person ever to have trouble establishing a professional rapport with Jose Mourinho. To this day, Mourinho's only instance of interpersonal conflict in the workplace. The ball gets away from Valdano, and just as Maradona is breaking toward the goal, the English midfielder Steve Hodge clears it back toward the goalkeeper, Peter Shilton. Peter Shilton, Maradona, and the ball are now rapidly converging in front of the goal mouth. Peter Shilton, phenomenal goalkeeper. Remember that for later. Probably a top five goalkeeper in the world in 1986. Not the tallest guy, about six feet. Next to Maradona, he looks like Yao Ming. They both go up for the ball. The referee is about 10 yards behind them. Shilton looms over Maradona and is also allowed to use his hands. This should be an easy get. Yet somehow, Maradona makes this odd sort of twisting leap. And before you see what happened, the ball has gone past Shilton and bounced into the net. They're appealing for offside. The ball came back off the foot of Steve Hodge, and Maradona gives Argentina the lead. The England players protesting to the referee, but the little man who started it by walking past Glenn Hoddle, that's where the ball came from Hodge. Maradona had continued the run forward, and the goal is given. England players immediately start screaming for a handball. The commentator for the Argentine side of the game, our old pal Victor Hugo Morales, immediately sees that it's a handball. Here's what he says. The linesman didn't spot it. The referee looks desperately at him while the English make their justified, for me, protests known. The goal was scored using a hand. I celebrate it with all my soul, but I must say what I think. Obviously, it's a handball. The replay shows clearly that it's a handball. There are maybe three people watching the match who don't know it's a handball. The referee doesn't know it. The linesman doesn't know it. And the single funniest thing about this moment is that the English commentator, Barry Davies, 
also doesn't know it. He thinks the English players won an offside call. World War I is breaking out in front of our eyes, and my dude is telling a TV audience that he's concerned for Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who appears to be suffering from food poisoning. After the match, Maradona is asked about the goal, and he utters the greatest post-game line in the history of organized sports. Greatest pre-game line is float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. This is post-game. He says the goal was scored a little with the head of Maradona and a little with the hand of God. Was it cheating? Oh my yes. Was it poetic justice? When you're slapped, you'll take it and like it. I'm talking to the ball. Also, to the ghost of the British Empire. It is also, I think, one of the funniest goals in the history of soccer. I mean, if you're mad, I get it. But come on, you've got Maradona, like, half celebrating with all these little furtive glances back at the ref to see if he's been caught, like a kid trying to sneak out of the room with a cookie. You've got the referee practically feeling in his pocket for his glasses. You've got the Argentina commentator openly acknowledging it was a handball, while the British commentator is like, I'd rather fear we've been pipped, old bean. You've got Maradona playing coy about whether it was a handball for years after the event, then finally acknowledging it, then featuring in newspaper articles in 2008 claiming he'd apologized to the English, then insisting he'd been misquoted and had never apologized to the English because, quote, I think apologizing to the English is stupid. (laughs) Put it on my tombstone. Three and a half minutes later. Second goal. Here we go. Actually, one more thing about the hand of God goal first. It is a problem that the hand of God goal has such a cool nickname. I fear that the sheer coolness of the hand of God nickname has prevented Maradona's second and first legitimate goal of the match from being appreciated to the extent that it deserves. That's not to say it hasn't been appreciated, because it has. It's often called the greatest individual goal in the history of soccer. It was voted goal of the century before the 2002 World Cup. Lionel Messi paid a sort of WTF homage to it by scoring a nearly identical goal against Hitafe in 2007. People know it was good. But it doesn't have a name. You need a name. You need a thing you can say and point to it and go... It's that. It's the phoenix feather cloud dragon goal. It's that. I don't know. People try to call it the goal of the century. That is a weak name. That's an online poll result. The hand of God goal has a Wikipedia page. The second goal has a subheading. You think names aren't powerful? Okay. I want you to picture Maradona getting the ball 65 70 yards from the goal. He's a mile from the goal. He's on the far side of the halfway line. The whole England team between him and the goal. You're not even thinking about him scoring from this spot. 65 yards out. Remember the question we brought up earlier? The disco ball hanging over everything? The question was, why do sports make us feel things? Well, here's a theory. 
because nothing is simple. It's complicated. Life is hard and messy and clumsy, and ideas never line up with actions, and ideas never line up with other ideas, and you spill your smoothie in the car, and you wake up at three in the morning thinking about the embarrassing text you sent two years ago, and everyone you have ever loved is going to die, and your battery is on 2%, and you don't even know why you told that lie, and I submit that no athlete in history History has embodied the mess and confusion of being alive more consistently and more vividly than Diego Maradona. But sometimes, sometimes on a soccer pitch, everything comes together in just the right way to make it look simple and clear. Everything breaks your way for once. Everything works. The guy who passes him the ball, by the way, is the midfielder Hector Enrique. Totally unremarkable role of the ball. Enrique's 60 now, and for years, whenever people ask him about the goal, he does this great bit. He goes, well, after a pass like that, (laughs) Maradona 65 yards from the goal. And for the next 11 seconds, in this sort of beautiful, slow, fast tempo, where he's hurrying, but he's also taking his time, he just takes England apart. Do you know how hard it is to dribble through an entire soccer team? You have to control the ball with your feet You have to set up your next move and your next move and your next move, and all a defender has to do is just just bap it away from you. Just one little misstep, one guy pokes the ball with his toe, the move is over, it's dead. And you feel this difficulty, especially keenly in soccer, because, well, I don't want to get super theoretical while Diego is making his move. But compare soccer to almost any other sport. Almost every other popular sport does something to enhance the human body. It gives you a power you don't normally have. You get a stick to hit the ball with. Now you can hit the ball very far. You get to play in body armor. Now you can hit another person very hard. You get a ball that bounces. Now you can control the ball like a yo-yo. What soccer does instead is to take something away from you. One of the most important things, your hands. Easily a top five body part. Soccer exaggerates the clumsiness and difficulty and mess of trying to do anything in this world. And then it says, okay, jackass, do it anyway. Under those conditions, to run through an entire defense and score a goal in a World Cup knockout game with the whole world watching, against your geopolitical arch-nemesis. It is so breathtakingly hard. It is almost outside the limits of possibility. But holding it within the limits of possibility is not what Diego Maradona is good at. 
He pirouettes past Trevor Stephen. He breezes by Terry Butcher. He gets by Peter Beardsley. He gets by Terry Fenwick. Every single man in England in 1986 is named either Peter or Terry, the goalkeeper, whose name is Peter, comes out to stop him, and Maradona just, he does nothing. He just takes an unexpected extra step before shooting. Simplest possible thing. He dummies him. And the ball rolls right by Peter Shilton, and then he just has to beat Terry Butcher and knock it into the net. He already beat Terry Butcher once. This run lasted so long that Terry Butcher got left behind, caught up, and then got left behind again. Terry Butcher could have used the witness protection program after this goal. Maybe change his name to Peter. He would have disappeared. The thing I love about this goal... It's not busy. It's efficient. It's all vision and timing. There's no single moment where Maradona does something athletically astounding. He's not dunking from the free throw line here. The miracle is the simplicity. Every move he makes has a purpose. It's like watching someone checkmate a chess grandmaster in four moves. He destroys an entire defense with no wasted motion. Complete mastery of timing and tempo, little hitches and changes of pace. Everyone else out there is fighting gravity and physics and time the way we're all fighting them. Maradona orchestrating them. They're on his side. The components that make life chaotic and impossible just fall into alignment. And that weightless thing fluttering up and away like a helium balloon, that's the top of your head. Wave goodbye. The thing about euphoria, though, is that it's not a durable emotion. It doesn't last. Well, sometimes it lasts for a little while. Argentina beats England 2-1. Gary Lineker scores the England goal, knocks Belgium out in the semifinals, and wins the World Cup, beating West Germany in the final. Maradona becomes a quasi-religious icon in Argentina. The next year, he leads Napoli, a team that never wins Italian soccer championships, to the Italian soccer championship. He becomes a quasi-religious icon in Naples, a city that knows from religious icons. It gets weird. I'm not talking about normal superstar weird. I'm talking about the Neapolitan Mafia gives him the first Volvo 900 ever imported into Italy weird. That weird. We don't have to follow him now into the post-86 labyrinth of the rest of his life. We don't have to talk about 1994 when he gets kicked out of his final World Cup as a player after testing positive for ephedrine. We don't have to talk about the cocaine and the drinking and the heart attacks brought on by cocaine and drinking and the endless tabloid circus and the friendship with Fidel Castro and the whole sad, hurtful, hilarious tornado of Maradona existing as himself. We'll just say that when chaos comes back, chaos comes back hard. 
That's what makes Maradona's moments of brilliance so moving, that he exaggerates both sides of the human equation. We're watching a life more confused and hurtful and messy than any life we know break free into a clarity more beautiful than any clarity we've experienced. He dies in 2020 under bad circumstances following what's initially reported as a successful brain surgery. Seven medical professionals responsible for caring for him are eventually charged with a form of homicide. Tens of thousands of mourners pour out onto the streets of Buenos Aires. His body lies in state at the presidential palace. Mourners fight with cops. There are reports that he's buried without his heart to prevent people from digging him up and stealing it. It's complicated, but I don't want to talk about any of that. I want to stay in 1986 with Victor Hugo Morales. I want to stay in the moment when you realize euphoria has arrived. This is 22 Goals, the story of the World Cup, written by me, Brian Phillips. The executive producers of 22 Goals are Chris Ryan, Juliet Littman, and Sean Fennessy. Our story editor is Connor Nevins, and the show was produced by Devin Rinaldo, Mike Wargon, and Vikram Patel. Copy editing by Jacqueline Cantor. Fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. I wouldn't say I need a ton of fact-checking for the most part. Like, just small stuff overall. There was an early draft of this episode where I described Maradona as Canadian. So thanks to Kellen for catching minor slip-ups like that. The sound design in this episode is by Devin Rinaldo, who also composed the theme song and many of the music tracks. Some of the other music you heard in this episode is from Epidemic Sound. Additional mixing by Scott Somerville. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. All right, here we go. I'm here at my local soccer pitch. I've been warming up, and I'm going to try, like Leo Messi before me, to reenact Diego Maradona's most iconic goal. I do not know if I have the athletic ability to pull this off, even with no defense present on the pitch and no stakes. I'm going to do my best. This will be my greatest accomplishment. Here goes. Ah, okay. I have missed the goal. Also really hurt my hand.